this morning, we're back in the Psalms to celebrate Christmas together. So we decided that, that for last week, this week, and the next week, three weeks celebrating Advent and the meaning of Jesus' coming, we would go back to the Psalms because the Psalms so clearly picture for us what God's people were longing for. Advent is a season where we try to connect with Jesus by connecting with why we need Him in the first place. Because Jesus is God's answer to the longings of His people. Jesus is God's answer to the longings of His people. To really understand Him, if we're really going to see Him as good news, we've got to start with those longings. Those longings in His people Israel, in the Old Testament, and those longings in us, where they show up in our own hearts, in our own lives. And then we've got to look from that place, from the place of our longings. We've got to look from that place to Jesus and what it is that He brings. It's like paying attention to your own thirst before water will ever be sweet. Water's bland when you've had that doctor-recommended eighth glass of the day. When you get back from a run or you've been working in the yard all day in the middle of the summer, water takes on a whole nother sweetness, doesn't it? You've got to concentrate on the thirst before you'll really appreciate the significance of the water. We've got to do that together now before we can celebrate Christmas with, with clarity and purpose. One of the, so I've used this image of thirst and water that meets it. That's an image that the Old Testament uses a lot for the longings of God's people and for what God wanted to provide them. Another image that the Old Testament uses a lot is the image of darkness. So much of our service this morning, our songs and our readings have already been pointing that way. It's why we light candles at Christmas. It's why we put lights on our trees and on our houses. We're emphasizing light breaking into hostile territory and taking it over. Darkness was a common image for the experience of God's people in the Old Testament because, because they'd sinned so much. They were constantly having to live in worlds that were far removed from what God had promised them, from what He intended for them. And they were always having to weigh how they could trust in God's promises to them when the things they were seeing around them were so different from what they were looking for. And darkness is something we understand, isn't it? I mean, it, it, It's almost said so often now that it's a bit of a truism that, that especially at Christmas, people experience darkness. Because if you are already going through a hard time, if you are already depressed or melancholy, then there's something about Christmas and the marketing of it and the songs and just everybody else around you that makes you feel like you're the only one who's not having a good time. And it's isolating. It almost brings out the worst. It can make it hard to sing joy to the world and mean it. And, I mean, let's take it from the realm of the truism and the cliche and, and, and talk directly to our experience, right? To you guys out there. Here's what's true, and you know it. It's been a really hard year for a lot of you. Some of you have been dealing with sickness. In some cases, sickness that you'll live with the rest of your life. Some of you have been struggling with your singleness that you haven't chosen for yourself and that you wish you could get rid of. Some of you have relationships that have fundamentally changed this year and not for the better. 
Some of you have dealt with miscarriage and infertility. Some of you have people that you love who died this year. Some of you have been losing your battle with lust and you aren't even sure what it would look like for you to win. These are the realities that I know that you know are true for you this year. And what we also know is that next year is going to bring hard things we haven't even thought of yet that we haven't imagined things are going to happen to us next year that we would never choose for ourselves. So what we've got to do if we want to turn what we're doing in celebrating Jesus this week into anything more than just a a break, what we've got to do if we want to start driving in the promise of that light into the darkness we live with, what we've got to do is learn to talk with God about the darkness. And we've got to learn to talk to ourselves about Jesus. The Psalms are a great guide for this. That's what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes. Especially Psalm 43. We're not sure who wrote this psalm. But it seems like it was written by somebody who was living under bondage. The words of it seem to fit Israel's experience after they had disobeyed God over and over and over and He had punished them by sending in this massive power that they couldn't resist, who conquered their nation, who took their people and exported them back to, to, to foreign lands where they were cut off from the promises of God's, of God's word to them for the, for the land, or where they were cut off from the temple itself which had been destroyed. They were cut off from the things that gave their lives meaning and purpose and hope. Now they're, now they're in a foreign place Conquered, colonized, and bondage to a foreign people, wondering if it was all over. We don't know that that's where the author was, but it sure sounds like it. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 go together. In fact, many people believe they're one long psalm. We're going to focus on Psalm 43 this morning, but both of them express this longing to see God again. They express this feeling that maybe you guys are living with this morning, where... You really aren't sure where to look if you want to see Him. We want to follow the lead of this psalmist and then bring in the message of Christmas to give us all two steps for processing darkness in a way that lives in the light. Right? What we want to do is process the darkness that's still here, but do that in a way that honors and glorifies and even savors the light that we celebrate at Christmas. Two steps. We've got to talk with God about the darkness and we've got to talk to our souls about Jesus. I want to begin by reading this short psalm for us this morning before we unpack it some together. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of God's Word while I read these five verses. This is the Word of the Lord from Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, And defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. 
Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first thing we've got to do if we want to drive in the beauty of Jesus and His coming as a light into the darkness, into the darkness of our lives, is we've got to learn how to talk with God honestly about that darkness. And that's what this psalm models for us. I want to give you, I want to point you just to three layers of this conversation with God that this psalm models and that Jesus coming to us helps put in a new perspective. Three layers to this conversation with God. So practical, so helpful. Here's the first thing. The first thing we see in this psalm, what the psalmist is doing with his angst and his sorrow. First thing we do is we tell God what's wrong and we ask him to change it. It's that simple. The Bible never asks us to pretend like things are always better than they are. The Bible is relentlessly honest about our experience. And this psalm is a great example of that. Look at, look at the, the way he begins it. Vindicate me, O God. Put me in the right. Show everyone that I was right. Defend my cause against the deceitful and unjust man. In other words, somebody in his life is taking advantage of him. They've been deceiving him in order to get a leg up on him. Or they've been exploiting him so that they get, they get benefit from his pain. And he's honest with God about it. Defend me. He's not just sort of hunkering down to take it because his life should be full of pain and sorrow and suffering. He asks God to change it. He refers to the oppression of the enemy as well. I'm not sure what kind of enemy he had. Sounds a whole lot like what Israel was dealing with when they were conquered by Babylon and taken to Babylon. They did the work of the Babylonians. They did whatever they were told to do. They had no other choice. They had no freedom. And he wants freedom. Who else would you talk to about the hard things in your life if not the Father who made you and loves you and rules over all things? The Bible never asks you to just stuff down inside or turn a blind eye to what's wrong in your life. The Bible tells us that God is actually honored when we open up to Him about what we're experiencing and we treat Him like He cares and like He has the power to do something about it. He never turns a deaf ear to His children when they bring Him in on what they're facing. So there's your first step. What do you do with the darkness in your life right now? You talk to God about it. You tell Him what you're feeling. or You tell Him what's wrong and you ask Him to change it. 
but there's more. Here's a second layer. And this one's the heart of the psalm. This one covers verse 2 to verse 4. Tell God what you're feeling and ask Him to change you. The first one is tell God what's wrong and ask Him to change it. Ask Him to change what's wrong out there. Circumstances in your life that you wish were different. It's okay to tell God you want them different and ask Him to change them. But there's actually always a deeper thing going on than just what's happening around you. And the psalmist points us toward it here. He's not only fixated with the hard things in his life that have been done to him. He's opening up to God about the way those things make him feel about God. And he's asking God to change the way his heart is responding to what he's going through. Look at verse 2. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? It's remarkably honest, isn't it? Everybody resents hard things in their lives. You don't have to be a Christian to not like it when things don't go your way. But there's a special kind of anguish that belongs to the believer. We talked about this when we talked about Job over the summer. It'd be one thing if you didn't believe that there was a God who made you and loves you and rules over all things. Then when hard things happen to you, you would not like them, but you would at least have a certain way of explaining them that, that softened it a bit, wouldn't you? Just blind chance. It's just a numbers game that I got this sickness when others don't have it. Or you could chalk it up, the hard things that people do to you, to just biology. Survival of the fittest. Every man for himself. It's just the way of the world. But a believer can't chalk things up to blind chance. They can't write off oppression as no more than a Darwinian survival of the fittest playing itself out. For the believer, God is always involved in it somehow. And that brings with it a special kind of internal anguish. Verse 2, the end of it, has always, or before I connected with this, it, it was always something I stumbled on. Why do I go about mourning, he asks, because of the oppression of the enemy? It seems like he answers his own question. Why do I go about mourning? Well, it's because of the oppression of the enemy, obviously. But no, no, no. He's not asking about that. He's asking, God, why have you let me go about mourning because the enemy is oppressing me? In other words, why haven't you done something about this enemy? Why have you rejected me? He understands that behind it all, God is at work. And he doesn't know what God is doing. And that's where this inner tension, this turmoil that he describes is building. The believer can't help but wonder what God is up to. The believer has to endure the taunts of Psalm 42. So remember I said at the beginning, these are, most people think probably this part of the same psalm. Just like three verses of one song. Back in Psalm 42, he asked this same question about, about, uh, about his soul being cast down. In verse 5, that's one of the reasons we connect the two. That same question comes up in both psalms. Up near the top of, verse, of Psalm 42, 
he, he describes what people are saying to him. All the day long, those who don't believe in his God, who look at his life, who see the darkness of it, they taunt him, asking him, where is your God? Any God who would let that happen to you is no God worth worshiping. The believer has to sit under that taunt without answer. You are the God in whom I take refuge. God was the God he'd looked to. His defender, his rock, his place to stand and to rest. So where are you? He feels alone in his mourning and at the mercy of those who want to hurt him. And he's just brutally honest about it. And there's nothing wrong with what he says here to God. It is not sinful of you to be honest about what you're feeling and asking in the midst of your pain. Because the psalmist here is not accusing God. He's not making himself God's judge and saying you should have done things differently. He's merely saying, where are you? And in verse 3, he asks God to change him. He's been honest in verse 2 about what he's feeling. He feels alone. He feels like God has rejected him. But he knows that there's a breakdown between what he believes about God and what he can see all around him. There's this gap in his experience between what he sees and feels and what he believes is true. And he's asking God to bridge that gap. He's asking God to show himself to be who he believes God is in a way that he can see. In other words... He recognizes that the God who feels distant, the same God that by whom he feels rejected, that that God is also the only hope he's got. The same God that he feels like has rejected him is also the only hope he's got for a, for a better future. So when he prays to God, he prays to him not just to vent, but to ask God to change him. He realizes that his problem is in his perception of God, not God himself. So look at what he prays. Send out, verse 3, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Send out your light so that I can see it. Send out your truth so I don't believe these lies that I'm telling myself about my experience. And let them lead me. Lead me where? Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. He wants God. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God. What is he praying for? He's now no longer praying about the things he wants God to change in his life. He's praying for God himself. He wants God to send out light and truth so that he can see where God is and come to him. Because he knows that the same God by whom he feels rejected is also the only hope he's got.
He speaks to God for light and truth because he is conflicted in his soul about his relationship to God. He feels forsaken by him, but he doesn't believe God would forsake him. So he's asking God to to remind him that he is with him, that he is there, that his presence is for him, with him, always, even in that desperate place. He knows, in other words, that he's, as one person put it, spiritually blind to something. There's something he's not seeing because he feels rejected and God would never reject him. So he prays to God, show me. So, friends, by all means, ask God to deliver you from what's hard. He loves you and He is strong to save and He always hears when His children come to Him. But even more than that, ask Him to be with you. Ask Him to give you perspective in the dark so that you can see. Ask Him to send out His light and His truth so that they will lead you. Well, those are the first two steps to take if you want to talk to God about what's going on in your life. The third one is where this sermon becomes a Christmas sermon. Okay? So you want to talk to God about what's going on and ask Him to change it. Then you want to talk to God about what you're feeling. Be honest with Him. And ask Him to change you to help you see what's there. But the third thing, the third thing is where Jesus comes in. Communication always runs both ways. We're not just talking to God. Notice, the point is talk with God. It's communicate with God. You've got to move beyond a one-sided conversation with Him and learn to listen to Him. So here's your third step. If you want to talk with God about the darkness, then you've got to listen to, for His answer in Jesus. The third step is to listen for His answer in Jesus. The prayer of this psalm was heard by God and it was answered for all time in the coming of Christ. He heard His people sing this to one another. Over hundreds of years they gathered and sung this song. He heard them singing. He heard their cries for light and truth for His presence. He heard those prayers And he answered them in Jesus. We got to learn to hear that word from God where we are, in what we face, and know that he's not silent, that he's spoken once and for all in his son. I want you to flip over real quick. Flip over to John chapter 1. It's not one of the Christmas stories, but it's still an amazing Christmas passage. John chapter 1. It's maybe even a song written to celebrate Jesus and His coming. I want to show you just how clearly the, what John says about Jesus mirrors what the psalmist here was praying for from the darkness of exile and bondage that he was living in. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Word. Logos. Truth. Send out your truth. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Send out your light. Let it lead me. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now what have, the, what have, these, what have these gifts brought us to? This truth, this word, this light. Skip down a little bit. Verse 14. The word or the truth became flesh and dwelt among us. Presence. Lead me to your holy hill. Lead me to your dwelling. I want to dwell where you dwell. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me to where you are. God hears the cries of his people. And he sends the word made flesh, the light that the darkness could not overpower. And he put up his tent, made his home with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see it? What the psalmist longed for is available to you now in Jesus. Light, truth, presence. Not yet full deliverance, but perspective. New and forever changed perspective. And always, always companionship. Those gifts are yours in Christ. One of my favorite examples of somebody who got this when he shouldn't have. Who got this message, this promise, when everything in his life worked against it, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I particularly I have this collection that I love on my, uh, on my shelf at the office of uh, Advent-oriented writings from Bonhoeffer. And a lot of them are letters that he wrote to his fiancée. Did you know he was engaged? Maybe you don't know much about Bonhoeffer. Let me just back up a second. Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian in Germany during the time that the Third Reich came to power and began to to try to take over the world. Um, Bonhoeffer was part of the resistance to Hitler's rise to power and to his reign there. He was one of, uh, of a small group of church leaders who didn't just capitulate to power but actually were a prophetic voice against what Hitler was trying to do. And Bonhoeffer paid dearly for it. He was captured for his role in a plot to take Hitler out. And he spent years in prison before he was finally executed, just before uh, the Allied powers liberated the camp where he, where he was kept. Well, while he was in prison there, he wrote a lot of letters to his fiancée. He was engaged to be married. And some of them he wrote about Christmas. And about the perspective of Jesus coming to us. About what, 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 what that did to his perspective about where he was. And so imagine him facing his own death. He would be executed in a prison camp. And you know how those prison camps were. If you know much about World War II history. They were not places you wanted to be. Separated from everybody that he loved. And... This is what he wrote to Maria about the meaning of the Christmas message in the context of suffering and darkness and evil. He said this, 
just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it. Few people have ever meant that more. There's no, there's no melodrama in that line. The Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong. That what we take to be evil and dark is really good and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault. That is all. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Where are you? Why have you rejected me? My eyes are wrong. That is all, Bonhoeffer says. Why? Why should we believe that things aren't what they seem? Isn't that just wishful thinking, Hallmark card, mumbo jumbo? Bonhoeffer continues, God is in the manger. That's why. Things are not what they seem. When God can lie in a manger... Wealth in poverty, light in darkness, succor in abandonment. No evil can befall us, whatever men may do to us. This guy would be executed. No evil can befall us, whatever men may do to us. They cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. He wrote that just before his death to his fiancée that he would not see as a free man, ever again. And the reason this isn't just talk and wishful thinking or sentimentality is that God has come to us in Jesus. He did send out His light. He did send out His truth. He has led us to His dwelling by coming to live with us. So you've got to talk with God about the darkness. Be honest to Him with him about how you feel but remember he has already spoken into it he is not silent in the last days he has spoken by his son and that word stands forever talk with God about the darkness and here's the last thing gotta learn to talk to your soul about Jesus Got to learn to talk to your soul about Jesus. Do you notice where the psalmist goes in verse 5? So he's been really honest about what's going on inside of him. His insides are churning. We know what that feels like, don't we? But then he turns his focus from God, telling him what's wrong, asking him to change it, telling him how he feels, asking him to change him. To his soul. And he says to his soul, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He's my salvation, he is my God. Here the psalmist is addressing his soul directly with the truth that God has spoken to him. Here the psalmist doesn't take his feelings as a given. He is not enslaved to them. And we've already seen in this psalm, he's also not suppressing them. 
It's not like he's just stuffing them down out of, out of sight, bottling them up so that no one sees that he, that he really doesn't feel good, plastering on some sort of big, happy smile that he never lets shake. He's not suppressing his feelings. He's already expressed them. But he's also not enslaved to his feelings. He realizes that his feelings cannot rule him. He wants to rule his feelings by truth. So he talks to himself. Why are you cast down? We know why his soul is cast down. He's got good reason to be down. His life is out of his control and it is way off the rails that he wanted for himself. We know why he's cast down. Why are you in turmoil within me? We know why he's in turmoil. He's churning. The things that that God said were true don't look true. The things he longed for, the the image of his life that that he had always had and clung to, it wasn't real. There's a kind of death that happens when that's true. He's living through it inside. Haven't you experienced that kind of turmoil? That churning, that thought loop that you can't escape where you just go further and further down in a spiral of self-absorbed loathing and pity? I've lived that. We know why his soul's cast down and why his insides are in turmoil. The reason he's asking these questions is that he doesn't think there, that his soul ought to stay that way. There are true things about God and about what he's doing in the world that don't let our souls stay that way. He is not content to let him be. He doesn't pretend like he doesn't feel the way he does, but he doesn't believe he has to continue feeling the way he does. So he's coaching himself up. I kind of imagine him standing in front of the mirror, you know, and giving himself one of those pep talks that you see people do on TV. But in all seriousness, he's telling himself truth that isn't random, it isn't wishful thinking is specifically tied to the character of God, the God who had revealed himself all through Israel's history, who proven himself true over and over and over again. Hope in that God, not some vague, ill-defined power that you hope might be for you if you can do the right things to get get them on your side. No, This covenant-making God who gives promises to people who don't deserve them and who gives of himself freely to all who look to him in faith. That God, hope in that God, that God is true whether I can see him or not. That's what he's reminding his soul. I'll praise him again, he says to his soul. I'll enjoy his presence again. I'll see the light again. I'll be delivered by my salvation and my God. Hopefully you can see what he's doing here. I think it's just critical. We can't miss it. We've got to talk to ourselves. We can't just let our own inner voices control. I love this. Uh, there's, there's a book. It's actually back on the resource table. I got a copy. 
put it over there because I knew I'd be talking about it today in case you want something to read over the holidays. It's a great holiday-themed book called Spiritual Depression. <laughs> it's really good, though. I mean, it's really good. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a collection of sermons by one of my favorite pastors. Uh, actually was active in his ministry about 65, 70 years ago. He was a pastor in London. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Started out as a doctor and then became a pastor. He's really just a wonderful preacher, faithful pastor in London at Westminster Chapel. This is a collection of sermons that he preached because he noticed a lot of people in his church weren't happy. That it was really common to be melancholy. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It certainly reflects my experience. So he wanted to help them connect with what's true about God and his promises. And this, this book is his attempt to do that. Spiritual depression. There's one chapter in there that I especially like called Feelings. That's the name of the chapter, Feelings. And he picks up the psalmist's question that we've been unpacking here. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Here's what Lloyd-Jones says about what the psalmist is up to here. The whole danger, Lloyd-Jones writes, is that when the mood comes upon us, we allow it to dominate us and we're defeated and depressed. We say that we would like to be delivered and yet we do nothing about it. So I'm asking, what are we to do if we don't want to be controlled by the darkness that we feel? What are we supposed to do about it? What can we do? We can't just will ourselves away from feeling the way we feel. Here's his answer. You have to speak to yourself. Remind yourself of who you are and what you are. You must talk to yourself and say, I am not going to be dominated by you. These moods shall not control me. I'm going out. I'm breaking through. This is the constant exhortation of the scriptures, he writes. If you allow these moods to control you, you'll remain miserable. But you must not allow it. How? He asks. Your business and mine is not to stir up our feelings. It is to believe. There's the key sentence. Your business and mine is not to stir up our feelings. It is to believe. We are never told anywhere in Scripture that we're saved by our feelings. We're told that we are saved by believing. And this is something we can do. I cannot make myself happy. But I can remind myself of my belief. That's what the psalmist is doing, right? Why are you cast down? Hope in God, that God, our God, the promise-making, promise-keeping God who rescues all who look to Him. Hope in God. And the psalmist had a great reason, great reasons to hope like this. He had Israel's history. He had example after example of God delivering his people from their distress. And he probably had the prophets. If this was a guy who's writing, like we think, in exile somewhere, he probably had most of what the prophets had to say. Promises that God would not be angry forever. Promises that a deliverer would come. He would not leave them where they were. He had good reason to hope, but he had nothing compared to what we have. Because we live on this side of Jesus, we have Christmas. We have the promise of Emmanuel delivered. We know we are not alone because the Word became flesh and set up His tent with us. 
forever. So what do you do with the darkness in your life right now? Or the darkness of this season when everyone else seems so happy? Or the darkness in the year that's coming that will have pain you can't predict or stop from happening? What do you do with it? It's really simple. You talk to your soul about Jesus. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your Son. The Word or truth made flesh. The light that the darkness cannot overpower. And the presence of God with us. Emmanuel. We don't deserve Him. And we can't even believe in Him in the way we need to on our own. But we ask You to be true to Your promises for Your name's sake so that we can enjoy You in the way that You want us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.